historian, entrepreneur, and author Itai Tenenbaum is your guide for a behind-the-scenes tour of Israeli society and objective analysis of the key issues of the day for anyone who wants a deep and authentic look inside Israel. Welcome to the Inside Israel podcast. Chilling and horrifying TV footage showing a Hamas operative sticking his pistol into a slot of the separation wall between Israel and Gaza and firing. He hit a soldier that was right on the other side, standing only two or three feet away in the head. The soldier is currently hospitalized and the doctors are fighting for his life. This event was thus far the climax of a couple weeks of skirmishes on the border of Gaza. Violent demonstrations, rock throwing, attempted theft of guns from the Israeli soldiers, and balloons guided into Israel in order to start massive fires. All of this incited by Hamas due to Israel's severely limiting the transfer of building materials and other goods into Gaza as a means of pressuring Hamas to release two Israeli civilians along with the remains of two Israeli defense forces soldiers. I should also mention that Hamas wants money, specifically $30 million cash from Qatar once a month, every month. In the last years, this money has been transferred to Hamas in suitcases, once again, courtesy of Qatar. So Hamas pressures Israel the way they know how, by violent demonstrations. As these demonstrations took place, Israeli Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, met with Abu Mazen, also known as Mahmoud Abbas, President of the Palestinians. They spoke about the economic strengthening of the Palestinian Authority. This is the first meeting of its kind in the last 10 years. Did Benny Gantz decide to meet Abbas all on his own without agreement of other government members, namely the Prime Minister, Naftali Bennett? Or are they playing good cop, bad cop? That is to say, Bennett, the bad cop, unwilling to consent to the PA, and Gantz, the good cop, promised to look out for them? Or is this a genuine strategy of Israel to boast the PA and by that, weaken the Hamas. One thing is for sure, Hamas didn't like it one bit. They condemned the meeting saying the following, Abu Mazen's meeting with the criminal Zionist minister of war, Gantz, is a knife in the back of our people and its sacrifice and a betrayal of blood of the martyrs. They continued, Abu Mazen continues to give up national values. He works to beautify the face of the occupation. He does not represent our people, but only himself. So let's take a look at Hamas. Who are they? How do they go from an irrelevant, small organization to one that can challenge Israel? And finally, how should Israel deal with Hamas? Hamas's ideology is that of jihad. They strongly believe in what the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood call the missing pillar of Islam. You see, there are five pillars of Islam, all of which are peaceful and socially oriented. But then again, what religion doesn't state peace and social justice as their main goal? The five pillars are belief in Allah and Muhammad as prophet, the prayer five times a day, the fast on the month of the Ramadan, the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca, and Tzedakah, same name in Hebrew, justice giving, or given to the needy. The Muslim Brotherhood emphasizes an additional pillar, what they call the forgotten pillar of jihad. The idea of physical jihad was only against the pagan worshippers and not against the people of the book, which are according to Islam, the Jews and the Christians. Islam believes that God gave the Jews the Torah and the Christians the New Testament. Hence, both groups should be protected as long as they pay their skull tax, which is an extra tax. A Muslim is forbidden to forcibly convert a Jew or Christian into Islam. But you can try to convince them with all kinds of restrictions, like type of clothing, a Jew or a Christian had to wear a certain kind of clothing. Or if a Jew or Christian rode on a camel, say, and a Muslim was on foot, they must get off so as not to appear superior. But most of all, a painful extra tax 
to Jews and Christians. It was called the Jizya. Incidentally, when the Muslim Brotherhood took over in Egypt for about a year or so, a while back, they suggested to reassess the tax on the non-Muslims. The Muslim Brotherhood interpretation of jihad has been adjusted into a war against all those occupying Muslim lands. They claim that the world is divided into two. One is called Dar al-Kharb, House of War. This pertains to all land not under Muslim rule or land that's under Muslim rule but not governed by the Sharia law. According to this, they can fight Israel, all of Southeastern Europe, and even Spain, which was once occupied by the Muslims, or the Egyptians regime that doesn't rule by the Sharia law. The second is called Dar el-Islam, House of Peace, which pertains to all land under Muslim rule and Sharia law. Now look, many are not aware that both the Fatah, which is the PLO or the Palestinian Authority, as I call it the PA, and Hamas were born from the same Muslim Brotherhood movement. In the 1960s, there's a split between the two movements. The Fatah, once again the PLO, influenced by the Egyptian president Gamal Abdel Nasser, took on socialism Soviet style. This meant that the Fatah, PLO, departed from the religious aspect that is so central to the Muslim Brotherhood. So a major rift was taking place between the Hamas, that maintained the religious aspect of the Muslim Brotherhood, versus the Fatah PLO, which said, no, we're not going to try socialism. No doubt socialism also meant Soviet backing on many levels, especially with weaponry and ammunition. The PLO becomes the popular movement of the two. Hamas, understanding their weakness, decides to concentrate on social issues, gaining support from the ground up, but at the same time starts to gather weapons and conduct military training for their followers. December of 1987 is a pivotal date since that was the beginning of the first intifada labeled a people's uprising by the Palestinians. Hamas seizes the opportunity and comes out publicly showing military strength. Five years later, the relationship between Fatah and Hamas is further degraded as a result of attempted peace between the PLO and Israel in what was known as the Oslo Agreements. That seemed to be the last nail in the coffin between Hamas and PLO, PA, Palestinian Authority, but Arafat, the head of the PLO at the time, the master of deception, wanted to make gains with Israel without signing a peace agreement. So he singles to Hamas to carry out brutal attacks against Israel. By the end of the year 2000, Hamas executed a new kind of terror, the suicide bomber. As discussed in an earlier episode, Must a Sword Devour Forever, the suicide bombers caused over 1,000 Israeli deaths within about four years. That was until Israel was able to figure out how to put an end to them using many tactics, among them the barrier, but most effective of all was targeted eliminations, which will be discussed in a future episode. 2005 marks a new type of friction between Israel and Hamas. In 2005, Israel completely pulls out of Gaza. 8,000 Jewish settlers from 21 settlements and all army units serving the Gaza were relocated. Most Israelis were happy to get rid of Gaza. For Hamas, this was a great victory. The Palestinian population fell in love with Hamas. They were still basking in the glory of the suicide bomber and then the Gaza pullout, both symbolizing to many Palestinians the victory of Hamas over Israel. Their perception was that Hamas was the true leader of the Palestinian people. So as a result, in elections held in 2006 for their parliament, Palestinians gave their vote to Hamas. However, the Fatah, the PLO, under the new leadership of Abu Mazen, 
otherwise known as Mahmoud Abbas, Arafat died a year earlier, didn't budge and acted as if the elections never happened. So in June 2007, when Hamas finally understood it would not be given its rightful victory in the parliament, they sent special forces who quietly slipped into the headquarters of the most trained Fatah units in the Gaza called Force Number no. 17 and they killed them. This was the spark that lit the Palestinian civil war in Gaza. Hamas' victory was swift. They moved quickly, taking over military and police bases. They also collected Fatah leadership led them up high rises and threw them off the roof. The sight of Fatah leaders plunging to their death created fear and panic. And although Fatah vastly outnumbered Hamas, they ran for their lives. Hamas became the sovereign power of the Gaza Strip. Since their victory, the Hamas is set on taking over the West Bank as well. Thus far, without success. For one reason and one reason only, Israel. So now let's talk about what is the Israeli strategy after the Palestinian civil war? No one in Israel really thinks that peace is something viable. Even the most of leftist of political parties do not speak of a peace deal. The Palestinian Authority and Hamas are not interested in peace with Israel. Neither are looking for a solution to this conflict. So Israel decided to divide and rule as opposed to divide and conquer. In other words, allow both Hamas and the Palestinian Authority to govern their areas, balance them off one another, and keep them as much as possible at bay. Israel and the Palestinian Authority security forces cooperate in order to squash potential Hamas takeover of the West Bank. At the same time, however, Israel allows for Hamas to rule in Gaza by, for example, allowing the $30 million in cash into Gaza as discussed previously. This strategy of divide and rule, or better said, divide and control events is far from ideal, but maybe the only real option at this point in time. As said, the Palestinian Authority is cooperative with Israel. It decided that their interest is mainly maintaining non-violence, but don't get me wrong, they still try to uh, delegitimize Israel in other ways, mainly in the world arena. So the question is, what to do with Hamas? What are the options with Hamas in Gaza? Several ideas have been brought up by political leaders, by academics, and others. None of the ideas are ideal. None promise to put a real stop to violence from Gaza. One of the ideas is that the Palestinian Authority returns to Gaza. This would enable the same kind of cooperation that we already have with them in the West Bank, managing the violence and maintaining a livable quiet. But there's no way the PA can take Gaza over. Even if they had a massive and viable military force, which they don't, they have no border with Gaza. In order for the PA to take Gaza, the Israeli Defense Forces would need to conquer Gaza, run Gaza for a year or two until the Palestinian Authority get set up. As they say, been there, done that. It didn't work. Oh, and we also tried in the 1980s in Lebanon and failed miserably. Very few Israeli leaders, politically and militarily, advocate for this kind of strategy. Another option is closing off Gaza totally. Gaza has a border with Egypt. Israel can say, you know what? It's your issue. It's your problem. Well, that's like putting your head in the sand. I guarantee you that Egypt would strike a deal with Hamas that would allow them to arm themselves to the teeth. And in return, Hamas would cause no problems for Egypt. Within a very short time, all kinds of sophisticated weaponry, including accurate missiles, would face Israel with the potential of causing substantial damage. A third option is to rebuild Gaza, give them a life and something to lose. Now, how many times has that formula been attempted around the world, especially in the Middle East? And how many times in these attempts have billions of dollars ended up in the pockets of the corrupt or in the pockets of radical movements? Just take a look at Iraq and Afghanistan. Both failed 
miserably. To think that if they only had something to lose, they will abandon their Islamistic ideology is naive at best. So what is left is what actually is happening. A management of the conflict with Hamas. Keep it at a low intensity warfare and every so often a large scale operation. Low intensity, I said. On the 20th of March, 2006, while Israelis went to the general elections, the first Russian-made Katyusha rocket landed in Israel from Gaza. The rocket fell on the outskirts of a city called Ashkelon, causing no damage or casualties. Since then, for 15 years, multiple thousands of mostly primitive rockets have been fired at Israel. Low intensity, right? Large-scale military operations, I said. No less than eight large-scale operations have taken place in the last 15 years. That's an average of one operation every 22 months. Speaking of which, I'd like to tell you about the last operation, heck, we can call it a war, that lasted 11 days, the formal name, Operation Guardian of the Walls. So last May, Hamas surprised Israel by firing seven rockets towards Jerusalem. Now, Israelis weren't surprised by their ability. We were surprised, however, at their audacity to cross a red line by firing at Jerusalem. Hamas had strategic reasoning. They were going to place themselves as the true leader of the Palestinian people by branding themselves as the defenders of Jerusalem, or in their words, the sword of Jerusalem. Hamas took advantage of several on-the-ground events happening in and around Jerusalem as a reason to fire the rockets. So one of them was the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where Arabs and Jews live and where real estate disputes turn political and symbolic for both. For the Jews, it was about living in Jerusalem anywhere and everywhere. And for the Palestinians, it was about fighting the occupation. Hamas wanted to establish itself as the savior of the neighborhood. Another event was the fact that last May was also during the month of the Ramadan. When Arab nationalism is always at a heightened level, emotions run strong, a perfect time to confront Israel. Third, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Confrontations there are always great for Hamas' ability to inflame the population. There were other reasons as well, but perhaps the most important was the cancellation of Palestinian elections by the President Abu Mazen Mahmoud Abbas. It was clear as day that in the elections scheduled for last May, Hamas would have gained serious power in the West Bank. So Abbas called the elections off. Hamas was pissed. The Palestinian Authority did it to them again. But this time, Hamas couldn't simply take over militarily, so they shot rockets, missiles at Israel. Hamas may have expected Israel's severe grave reaction, but they were prepared or so they thought. So in my research of this operation slash war, and also after speaking to people of rank, it is evident that Hamas planned several surprises for Israel in order to shock Israel. One of them was suicide drones, pilotless little airplanes, where you put bombs on top, guide them with joystick out of the Gaza Strip, and land them into the Israeli army, into civilians, and blow that up. However, Israel picked up the drones even before they entered, shot them down one after the other. None of them were successful. Another surprise that Hamas planned was using their sea commandos. They were going to use their sea commandos in attacking Israel underwater. They also were going to create little submarines, or they already had little submarines, suicide submarines that would go underwater, very small, to the area of Israel's natural gas depots and blow those up. Now, those submarines were shot out of the water. Not only that, but the entire sea commandos of the Hamas was basically eliminated by the Israeli forces. A third option of surprise was their attack tunnels, deep underground tunnels, of which Hamas special forces would use and then resurface somewhere in Israel and create terrible havoc. Well, those tunnels were pretty much known about. They were blown up with many of the terrorists still inside them. A fourth surprise was an entire underground city. They call it 
the metro, which is underground bunkers all throughout Gaza. Now, Israel had most likely used bunker busters. Those are bombs that reach deep underground and blow up the tunnels. Hence, the metro, the Palestinian metro, the Gaza Hamas metro didn't work either. One more thing, 20% of all the Hamas rockets were somehow tampered with and therefore they blew up either in their own territory or they fell very short. Now, having said all of this, let's just keep in mind that Hamas was able to continue firing rockets into Israel throughout the entire 11 days. It's a good thing that Israel has this Iron Dome defense system, which is able to shoot out 90% of the rockets facing civilian areas. Israel's military achievements were clear. Israel won. Israel won big time. Israel brought Hamas back years in terms of infrastructure and many other ways. But if you think about the culture of the Hamas and the strategy of Hamas, they themselves actually celebrated a victory. And why is that? First of all, they're still standing. Israel did not destroy all of them, did not go into the Gaza Strip and uh, completely take Hamas apart and kill all the leadership. Secondly, it is enough for Hamas to have branding as defender of Jerusalem. They had support among West Bank Palestinians and even Arab Israelis. To them, this is a major victory. As I was finishing recording this episode, I looked at my messages and saw a news bulletin that read that the soldier who was shot in the head nine days ago, Bar'el Khadaria Shmueli, has passed. May his memory be of eternal blessing. Please share this episode with others. You can access all of our episodes on InsideIsrael.fm, on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. 